Hello there, my name is Xian, and welcome to my podcast. In this episode, which is episode four, I speak to Dr. Caleb Ferguson, and his area of specialty is on stroke and cardiovascular disease. I met him in Sydney when he was doing his PhD, as well as working part time as a nurse. Since his PhD, he has achieved great results in stroke research and management. I've always been curious and wanted to find out more about his work, and this conversation has given me that opportunity. I'm interested because in my family, stroke or suffering from stroke is like the top three diseases after cancer and heart attack to avoid. Back then, there were very limited information on stroke prevention and management available. My family and close relatives have uh, this big fear of suffering from stroke. I think it's because stroke can prohibit uh, mobility and loss of movement in parts of the body or being paralyzed can bring extra burden to the rest of the family. So here it is. My conversation with Dr. Caleb Ferguson on stroke. Yep, so I'm from Sydney and I um, work in Western Sydney um, at Blacktown Hospital. Um, but I go across, uh, work across about six different hospitals in Western Sydney. And I have a program of uh, cardiovascular and stroke prevention research. Um, so our research um, is based at Blacktown Hospital, which is a really interesting place to work. Um, a lot of growth in terms of the population and a lot of different challenges out there, particularly in relation to stroke and cardiovascular disease. Um, it's quite an underserved area and a a, low, a lower SES status um, area with a lot of uh, different challenges in terms of language and uh, socioeconomic um, factors as well. So it makes it a really interesting place to, to work and to research. You and I have known each other for a while, and, mm. but I never really got the, the low down, the details of why you came to Australia in the first place, because you're from Scotland originally, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I trained as a registered nurse in Scotland and um, I worked for a little while, for about a year after graduation, um, in a general surgical unit in central Scotland in a place called Stirling. Um, and I had a, a friend who was quite interested in travel at that time, it was around 2004 or five. Um, There's a lot of international recruitment for nurses and on the back of a nursing standard there was the, the golden sands of Bondi which looked pretty good so we both um, applied for for positions in Sydney and in New South Wales um, and the interview process was was pretty informal um, we went both went down to London for the day um, to meet um, the recruiter and the um, a nursing representative from the from the state, and um, we both ended up getting jobs. And um, so she got a job in, in Canterbury Hospital, and my first job was out in Concord, which is just in the inner west of um, of Sydney, so not too far from 
livestock um, and near the Olympic Park. So that was a bit different to, to move um, to Sydney, but, but it was a good introduction, um, not being too far away from the city. But um, they came with uh, accommodation as well, which was in the form of uh, nursing residents. So um, that was quite interesting and a good way to, to meet people. But you know, the nursing home uh, residents there was um, $30 a week, I think it was, uh, before off your salary uh, for, um, for accommodation. So I think of that now and how much it costs to live in Sydney. And then that's a pretty good deal uh, for 30 bucks a week um, in terms of accommodation. And it was a good introduction to, to sort of all the Australian uh, lifestyle and, and lots of trips to, to beaches in the first few months and, and a lot of sunburn and, uh, and um, introduction to things like uh, goon bags of wine and uh, all the sort of delicacies in terms of Australian food uh, and lifestyle. Yeah. What was the first impression of uh, Sydney? Look, I think then it was pretty um, casual and quite low-key and laid-back. Um, for the first sort of year, it was quite nice to, um, to, to relax and, and spend most weekends out and about. Um, a lot of the time, sort of venturing into the city to go out on a Friday and Saturday night um, if I wasn't working, but, but then as well as doing shift work. So... A lot of night shifts and um, and morning early morning starts and, and late nights as well. But um, no, it was a good way to, to meet new friends and um, and and sort of explore uh, Sydney and, and cafes and restaurants and stuff like that as well. And did you imagine now? You know, you met your husband at the Sleazeball, right? Yeah, I did yeah, and that 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 was probably around. Um, 2009, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So a, did, did you Mardi Gras front fundraiser? Yeah. Did you ever imagine arriving in 2004? Now uh, meeting your husband, 2009, and now becoming a citizen and staying permanently in Australia? No, not particularly. I'm off, often quite fright, frightened that you know, 15 years went past very quickly. Um, and and I don't show any sign of returning to the motherland. Um, and becoming a citizen was pretty special. And um, and yeah, getting married uh, just over a year ago was, was very special. And then being able to do that in in Australia. And um, I think you know one of the first marriages uh, within our group of friends. You know, it's a beautiful way to to celebrate there down at the Andrew Boy Charlton Pool in, in front of our guests and things. Big moment. In Australia, your career has developed. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, look, I think um, I came over here as a sort of new graduate registered nurse and I had the opportunity to go and um, do some teaching initially for University of Tasmania, but developing an online course at um, the Roselle campus. And... Then I applied for a full-time academic position at UTS, which was a good place to to meet a lot of um, mentors and a lot of other colleagues. And I think it, from there, sort of thrived. Um, and yeah, I think I think working at UTS has, has been an absolute uh, really gold for for my career and um, development. And 
during that time, I've taken a few years off to do more study um, and work part time, also clinically and um, and and study as well. So it's been been good. Um, and just um, today, just the the embargo lifted um, on a highly competitive uh, National Health and Medical Research Council grant that supports my uh, research project um, until um, the program of research in atrial fibrillation stroke prevention until 2026. That's, uh, that's uh, quite a special uh, moment as well. Congratulations. Thank you. And it's good that we're able to talk about it. It's been embargoed for a couple of weeks now. So it's just been announced by the Minister for Health only a few hours ago. So off the press. When I was in Sydney, you took a ma massive interest in uh, stroke stroke prevention. What, yeah. what was the interest behind? What was the interest for you? What was the passion for you? Yeah, so my first job was in a neuroscience unit, which was very different from a surgical unit caring for patients with uh, neurological but neurosurgical uh, conditions that uh, requiring intervention and care. But I worked in some different stroke units for a while and mostly at Prince of Wales Hospital for a bit as well. Um, but it's, it was interesting, a lot of my friends at the time said, oh, this is, we, we don't like particularly working here, we want to work in the, the glitzy places like emergency departments and intensive cares and, um, but, you know, and, and I really recognised stroke was quite a physical job and um, often those patients are um, are, you know, have, have uh, functional or cognitive impairment and actually are quite um, limited in terms of movement and so actually as a, as a job it can be quite a physical um, job in terms of caring for those patients as well. But I really enjoyed it. There was a couple of mentors there that were really supportive and I learned a lot working in, in that unit in particular. When I was at UTS um, inside my PhD, it was there, there I met Trish Davidson, who's a professor of nursing at the time, and her program was really around um, heart failure. Obviously, the heart and the, the brain are connected. Um, in terms of some of the risk factors for stroke, um, a lot of these are related to cardiovascular disease, and, and whereby often the, the heart um, doesn't pump effectively or um, can supply the, the brain with blood or that it clots develop within the heart and then that has consequences for the brain in terms of uh, stroke development. So um, I was clicking and fashioning together a project with her um, around stroke prevention and atrial fibrillation. I undertook that study at St Vincent's Hospital and I think through that sort of process developed a bit of a passion in terms of that as in a focus. All too often I would see patients come to the stroke unit whereby this was their first stroke event. It was completely devastating for them in terms of the level of disability or death that exists. And you know, stroke impacts one in six people, but there's new global statistics that show one in every four people kills more women than breast cancer, more men than prostate cancer. And in Australia, there's probably one every sort of five or ten minutes. Really under-recognised in the community, it's the second largest um, cause of death and, and a major contributor to disability, second only to really dementia as well. But it doesn't get a lot of airtime, doesn't get a lot of press, um, and so there's not so much of a focus on it. You know, in the media, it's all as well, very passionate about it in terms of raising that profile. 
Um, because still, if you if you ask a school kid, um, or if you ask uh, even an adult, you know what what's a stroke, and um, what part of the body is affected. A lot of people will be thinking confuse that quite often with heart attack, and that the, the organ affected is the the heart, but it's actually the brain, and, and the, you know, that's not sort of too widely known, and particularly around the signs and symptoms you want to do with it. My first awareness of stroke is through my family, because my parents and uh, uh, people my uh, and my parents' level, they are always afraid that at OH they get the stroke, because it immobilized them. But my auntie now is basically uh, suffer from stroke, the effect of strokes, and she's she's bedridden most of the time these days. I mean, she does go to the hospital for. Uh, physio exercise, but at her age, it's not going to gain the mo mobility she used to have. It's a myth, isn't it, uh, Caleb, that only old people suffer from stroke? Yeah, um, so, so obviously advanced age is a well-established and um, um, independent risk factor for stroke. So as people get older, their risk increases with age and there's not much you can really do about that. Um, quite a fair proportion, one-third of all stroke survivors, um, are aged under the age of 65. So those people are of working age. And, you know, there's probably more people now having strokes in early, early adulthood, and there's quite a focus in the moment as well on childhood stroke and, and adolescent stroke as well. So, you know, I've, I've met quite a number of stroke survivors that are um, teenage years or early 20s, and, and they've had a stroke at age. And there's different, different underpinning um, pathophysiology to them a lot of the time as well. So more commonly in the elderly, um, we see patients having strokes that are caused by often a lot of different comorbidities, but um, that might be high blood pressure or underlying cardiac problems or, or other issues. But in those younger adults, um, sometimes they're often related to um, underlying um, potentially genetic conditions or or other issues as well, so, and and you know we do we do see um, stroke in, in newborns as well, um, but it, those those are you know, not not as common um, as as those seen in the you know, in the elderly, um, and, and I guess you know a lot of the time um, those that survive stroke will have a lot of uh, functional you know as I said functional cognitive impairment very common. Uh, two-thirds of stroke survivors will be left with some level of cognitive and functional impairment. So the care that they receive at that event and then following that as well is, is really critical. And I think in the last, as I said before, last couple of decades, acute stroke care has, has made huge advancements, particularly in, in hospital. But there's a lot of scope once the patient leaves the hospital door um, for improvement. So um, we deliver all this fantastic care now in hospital, but you know, oft, all too often you hear stories of the, the patient left the hospital door and and it's then when they, they can cope or this went wrong or this happened. And and I think um, that's something particularly, you know, hopefully future funding research and, and, and practice improvement needs to happen in that area of what we call transitional care from when the patient leaves the hospital door um, and then also support within the home environment or um, rehabilitation settings as well because it is those times where it's 
patients are particularly vulnerable um, going home and, and need a lot of support and, and that's a challenge in terms of how we deliver that uh, today, particularly in Australia. What's something that you've learned about yourself? What's something that's important that you think that's impacted you or you've learned uh, from this experience? Uh, something probably is around like, um, oh, there's, there's a couple of things. Um, and I still was saying around, uh, you'll, you'll never know if you never have a goal uh, and, and, and sort of applying for stuff and, and making different calls and getting yourself out there. Because I think it was very uh, shy and not very confident um, to call up uh, scary people um, or send emails to people. But if you don't do those things, you, you never potentially get some opportunities. Another thing is probably around the importance of sort of tenacity um, and and sort of keeping on going in the face of adversity. And so I think you know as much as instance I've probably applied for you know, maybe a hundred grants and you only get maybe a handful of them but I think you've just got to keep applying and, and keep on going because at the end of the day you know it's worth worth the effort um, but I think that, that's probably two things that have probably been quite important in the last little while yeah. it's so important to try new things and put it out there because you never know till you try you've got to be persistent in a lot of things um, in career as well, in applying for stuff as well. I don't know if it's to do with star signs, but people think it would be absolutely ridiculous that firmly believe in science, but at the same time, I love horoscopes. Uh, so I'm a top Taurian, and uh, you know, known for our uh, tenacity and our persistence and, uh, and stubbornness sometimes as well. So I think, uh, you know, those are character traits that I would say actually <laughs> are, are quite uh, true of me as well. Has COVID-19 uh, impacted people suffering with stroke? Uh, no, this is an interesting question. Um, so particularly in the US um, and there's some anecdotal data from Australia at the moment, um, we've seen lower presentation rates of stroke and um, heart attack yeah, definitely in the US and, and Potentially in Australia, I think that people there's a couple of contributing factors to that as well, um, but I think that fear um, of attendance to the hospital is is one factor that's keeping people away. Um, so so you know people are are fearsome of, of coming to the hospital and, and presenting to the emergency department. But in all truth, the emergency departments around. Uh, the country at the moment have been pretty quiet, and the hospitals as well, um, particularly in Australia. Um, and then um, patients with uh, non-communicable diseases like um, cardiovascular disease, stroke, and cancer as well, um, it's sort of feel the, the longer-term impact for those patients um, in, in not recognising potentially some signs and symptoms and the impact that that will have on the long-term health and, and patient outcomes as well. So, um, you know, there, there could also be some benefits to home isolation and physical distancing. So staying at home more, so we're uh, you know, less exposure to certain environmental factors, certainly less trauma potentially from uh, people, um, you know, out and about uh, falling off things, getting into road traffic accidents. So um, there are some other you know, um, consequences of, of 
home isolation and lockdown, and and it certainly had had an impact in, in a lot of different ways. You know, in a research world as well, it's, it's impacted the ability to continue some some research and be able to continue recruiting patients for different clinical trials and things. So, and um, hopefully, a lot of that will get back to the normal in the not too distant future. Uh, with this new grant that you just received, what what other uh, further research or medical research uh, have you planned? Have, have you got planned for it? Uh, the the grant is um, a five year um, grant that um, uh, support supports me as a researcher in my program of research, and it's focused on atrial fibrillation, which is the most common um, heart rhythm disorder, and um, so we call that AF. Um, and then um, with that condition. People might have some signs and symptoms, but sometimes they're asymptomatic, and and um, but it presents a really um, high risk of stroke for those patients. So it's really important to treat it with often they're treated with blood thinners and drugs like warfarin or some, uh, some different anticoagulants as well. So we're developing a, a model of care to care for those patients, a way of caring for those patients using. Um, digital-based intervention, so things like apps, um, to keep them well-informed of their condition. So often patients don't know about their medicines or their own condition as well. So it's really um, in, informing them and educating them with some information and in, in hope that they will manage some of their condition a bit better and it will improve their quality of life and it will hopefully keep them um, away from the emergency department and out of hospital and, and feeling better. So um, that's a program of work that we've been working on for the last couple of years with the Heart Foundation, um, and, and this is an expansion of that, that work um, until 2026. So we're, we're doing a study. Um, we've, we've been designing this intervention for the last sort of year um, with patients and families, and we're, we're now trialling that across a few um, a number of patients in a few different hospitals. If people need further information on stroke, where, did, where should they go? Yeah, so certainly the National Stroke Foundation has a fantastic website, so that's um, strokefoundation.com.au. But um, also, um, they have the stroke line, so it's 1-800-STROKE. Um, and there's registered health professionals at the end of the phone there um, to answer any stroke-related questions. They also have a couple of really great portals. So they have something called Enable Me, which is a um, it, it's a it's a platform for stroke survivors and their caregivers and families. Um, so it's, I think it's like a Facebook for stroke survivors. And it was designed by stroke survivors and their families um, with support from Bupa, um, and it's a purpose-built sort of platform. So has lots of sort of bigger vision stuff and, and body and stuff like that as well. Um, but I encourage people to, to check out that. It's called Enable Me um, and it's the links on the Stroke Foundation website. One thing I would, would end on uh, yeah. is the Stroke Foundation's uh, FAST message. So it stands for uh, Face, Arms, Speech and Time. Um, and so, it, um, you know, if we think that someone's having a stroke uh, and, and these things important to get to hospital fast because stroke is a medical emergency and when we can look at someone's face see if there's a droop on one side and so A is for arms and we can ask them to raise their arms and they have a weakness on one side 
and um, S is for speech. So is their speech slurred? Do they understand you? And or do you understand them as well? Um, and as I said, T is for time. So um, it's important that patients get hospital really quickly. Um, we have, as I said, new therapies, um, so thrombolysis and clot retrieval um, for, for some patients. So not every patient is eligible for those therapies, but um, a lot of these have, are, are time critical. So the patients need to get to hospital within, uh, say, three hours or four and a half hours of time of onset signs and symptoms. So they need to quickly recognise these symptoms and, and call an ambulance and get to hospital. There's no point in hanging around or going for a sleep to see if it'll um, shake off or going to visit the GP um, or get the bus to the hospital. It's important that they call the call triple uh, zero here in Australia and, and get to hospital very quickly to optimise their eligibility for those um, treatments as well. So I want them to remember the fast, fast message, but I also want them to go and uh, share it with someone. So if they, they listen to your podcast today, it wasn't it very interesting. Uh, there's a guy talking about stroke and allowed this uh, cool acronym called FAST. And did you know what it stands for? And uh, tell your kids about it and tell them to tell their friends at school or uh, your, your grandfather or um, someone down the pub as well. Because I think getting that message out is uh, particularly important. What are you grateful for today? Uh, I'm grateful for my husband. He's such a cheery chap every day, and he's become my co-worker recently. So it's been an interesting uh, six to eight weeks at home with my new co-worker. <laughs> um, we live in quite a small apartment, but um, it's been, been good to, to sit home. I, uh, admittedly, uh, you know, I have been, I have popped out to, to a work meeting or something, and um, mm-hmm. it's um. It's nice to sit at home again today and uh, have a chit-chat. Thank you. Thank you for your time today, Dr. Caleb Ferguson. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've just heard, please subscribe and spread the word. Thank you once again.